0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Father, we are grateful for your presence with us. We are thankful. For the 10,000 reasons, which is an understatement, that we can trust in you and we can give you glory and praise and honor and thanksgiving because you have been a good God. You're our creator and you have shown us through your scriptures just how wonderful and good you are. And I pray that you would teach us more today. I ask that as we hear your word, that you would. Instruct us in your ways And I ask that as I preach that you would help me to preach faithfully In the name of Jesus Christ we pray Amen Well, good morning church. Like I said, my name is Kelly Graham I'm one of the pastors here and I have the pleasure of sharing the Word of God with you today Uh, Church we are on the cusp of spring are we not? It's a good season. It's the season when all of Charles, all the Charleston men break out their sandals and rainbow flip-flops in combination with socks, depending on your age. Women get antsy to wear white again, break that rule, it's for no reason. Uh, the azaleas start to bloom and we're doing more cookouts, right? And the kids are getting excited about the pool. The pool. I remember when our old neighborhood that we used to live in had a sign that announced the day the pool would open in the spring and the kids would count down the days. And something you never cared to know about me, but I'm going to share anyways, is that I have a complete disdain for pools. Really, I'm not a fan of submersing myself in any kind of water. I know that's not very Baptist of me, but... Baptism is the exception. But uh, I'm just not a very big water guy. Part of the reason is swimming. I can swim, but when I swim, it looks like someone needs to come rescue me. And my distaste for pools actually has more to do with the feeling that they're just large bathtubs with multiple humans, most of whom are not in my family, and they just jump around and start splashing around. It's gross to me. And I know I'm honestly in the minority, but I just don't enjoy pools. Now, I've been in a pool a handful of times with my kids, and I, uh, but I, I don't go that often. I think that's actually one of their least favorite things about me as a dad, is that I don't like pools. But I will do almost anything to keep myself out of one. If I'm invited to a pool party, I will probably come fully clothed, ready to have fun by eating all the snacks. If, but if my kids try to go to a pool, they want to go to a pool, I will do anything to persuade them that they should not go and they should change their minds. I'll bar the way as well as I possibly can, but their sweet mom, my bride, will ultimately take them because she likes pools too. So you might ask yourself, what kind of dad would try to keep his kids from the abiding joy found in a swimming pool the answer is this kind of dad right here a dad who is quite self-righteous about not wanting to defile myself in the communal bathtub the kind of dad who has a hard time letting go and trusting in the unseen powers of chlorine the kind of dad who has made a decision to stick to his old ways and never change no matter how much his children beg I stand before you today confessing this for a more serious reason, because like me, standing between my kids and their joy, there were some men from long ago who stood between the children of God and the joy found in Jesus, trying to prevent God's children from entering the joy set before them. And these men were called the Pharisees. Now I know what I'm risking by using this illustration because my kids will call me a Pharisee every time I don't want to get in the pool. But it's true, I can be a Pharisee sometimes, even in other situations. I can find myself being self-righteous at times and based on the universal fallenness of mankind, I can bet that you catch yourself acting in self-righteous ways too. But if we're true disciples, we understand that we are all sinners, that we have a Savior named Jesus, and he is empowering us to turn from our sin daily. And this is where the Pharisees, I believe, lacked some self-awareness. They didn't see their sins the way that Jesus saw them. But in today's passage, Jesus confronts them on their own turf. Jesus instructs them in the law, which is supposed to be their expertise. What Jesus shows them is that they don't understand the first thing about the law. And today's story is connected to Greg's sermons last week, his sermon text about the dishonest manager, because the Pharisees heard that parable, and then they heard Jesus' warning that we cannot serve both God and money And the Pharisees react. Now let's read that short story from Scripture. And then we'll pray. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verse 14. If you're using the Bible you found in the back of the seat in front of you, it's on page 875. It will also be displayed on the screens. Luke 16, verses 14 through 17, four simple verses Hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, in these simple verses, you have taught us a an incredibly valuable lesson. I ask that you would help us to take it to heart. I ask that you would show us the glories of Jesus Christ, that you would show us how wonderful a king he is, how wonderful a father you are, and how powerful the Holy Spirit is that resides in those who have faith in you. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, Jesus has been telling a bunch of parables in the last couple of chapters in Luke. The Pharisees have been there listening since at least the end of chapter 14. And they start grumbling about Jesus' teaching at the beginning of chapter 15. But now we see in 16 that they're so upset that they start to ridicule Jesus. The religious leaders at that time were ridiculing the Son of God. Gracious. So in love for his own enemies, Jesus teaches them today's lesson, revealing the dark hearts that the Pharisees harbor. But before we get any further... Let me give you a biblical truth. This is the main idea that I believe that we are supposed to take from Jesus' lesson here. So here it is, the biblical truth. The good news of God's kingdom will thrill the repentant sinner and undermine the self-righteous. The good news of God's kingdom will thrill the repentant sinner and undermine the self-righteous. Well, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, if you're not as educated with the Bible as some others here, that's okay. There are a lot of words and concepts in today's lesson that you will have to learn in order to understand what exactly is going on. I'm going to attempt to briefly explain those terms and those concepts as we go so that you can track with me. But if, 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 if you hear something that piques your interest that I didn't describe, or if there's something that I didn't explain that you want to know more about, feel free to go on the website, get my email address, email me. I would love to talk with you more uh, about something that you may have uh, not been clear on or wanted to know more about. But let's get straight into it with our first of three supporting truths to prove that the good news of God's kingdom will thrill the repentant sinner and undermine the self-righteous. Number one, self-righteousness is an abomination to God. Self-righteousness is an abomination to God. Let's talk first about what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness or self-justification, however you want to put it, is when we try to make ourselves seem righteous apart from what Jesus did for us through his death and his resurrection. The Bible is clear that no one is righteous, only Jesus is. And by trusting that anything other than Jesus can save us or justify us or make us seem right, is called self-righteousness. That includes trying to save ourselves in any way, trying to think that our money can save us or our power or our good works could even save us, as good as those works may be. But trusting in any of those things, and by trusting any of those things, we are self-righteous. Because we take it upon ourselves to find our own Savior on our own terms, making ourselves right before men and disregarding what God thinks. And Jesus says that self-righteousness is an abomination but do we really know what an abomination is? Pastors like that word, right? Of course, an abomination is something that repulses God, but in the original language, it has a reference to something that has a putrid odor, something that just stinks, and it's like refuse. It's just repulsive and stinks. And that's what Jesus, that's what God thinks of self-righteousness, it's refuse to God, and he wants nothing to do with it. Self-righteousness is anti-God, and the leaders of God's people, the Pharisees, were confronted time and time again by Jesus over different types of self-righteousness, or as Jesus calls it in today's passage, the Pharisees were those who justified themselves before men. More specifically, regarding self-righteousness, these Pharisees valued money more than God. And they used their money falsely, albeit, as a sort of proof of their holiness and acceptance before God. They felt like uh, it, they made, it made themselves look like the most holy people of the holy people of God they felt like they had the material blessings to prove it they viewed their money as a means to justify themselves to make themselves look like they were righteous before god but the problem is they were only making themselves righteous in the eyes of men not god and what's more the last part of verse 15 says what is exalted among men, is an abomination in the sight of God. What men and women, what people naturally value, money, power, prestige, these are the things that people believe will grant them independence from God. And God finds that idea repulsive. God knew the Pharisees' hearts and considered their self-righteousness and abomination. I mean, honestly, it's it's almost comically apparent when you read the scripture. Jesus says, don't put money before God. Pretty simple, right? And the religious leaders start ridiculing him him over it. They thought that their money and the power and favor with, with other people was a result of the fact that they kept the law so well. And that goes to show you that they didn't know the basic purpose of the law. And if they were listening to Jesus, they would have recognized their error, but they refused to listen to him. Because you and I, nor the, nor the Pharisees, have the freedom to use the law of God to make ourselves look good. So what is the real reason. What is the real reason God gave his people the law? God gave the law so the people would know how to please God. But Jesus made it very clear that the whole law can be summed up like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the law, number one, was meant to show us how to love God and neighbor. Also, Paul goes even further in the book of Romans saying, if it had not been for the law, he would not have known what sin was. So, number two, the law reveals to us that we're sinful and we're in need of help. Lastly, Paul writes in Galatians telling that, The law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith and not by works of the law. So the law was not ultimate. It was meant to point us toward faith in God instead of our own works. So altogether, altogether, we see that the reason God gave the law is this. Why don't you read it aloud with me? to teach us to love God and neighbor, to show that we are sinful and in need of help, and to point us to faith in Jesus. Now, in Matthew five, in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9, and in Matthew 23, and in many other passages, Jesus confronts the Pharisees for directly breaking the law, for, for adding to the law for some and relaxing the law for others in whatever way benefited them the most. So does that sound like a good use of the law, church? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So the stewards of the law were the ones that Jesus was most displeased with because they knew the law. They misused the law, and they glorified themselves instead of glorifying God. But I want you to hear me clearly on this because we are like the Pharisees, and we often misuse the law too. It just looks a little different than them. Let me give you four examples of what you and I might have in our hearts. Do you ever hear these underlying thoughts in your hearts? Or maybe do you even believe them outright? How about this? If I look at that inappropriate thing one more time, or if I cheat, or if I steal one more time, God, God will still forgive me church that is a relaxing of the law and it's expecting cheap grace god will certainly forgive but forgiveness the implication is that we repent and turn away from that sin not try to soften the law and make it okay again how about this if I just obey or pray the right way, I just need to tweak it a little bit, maybe God will give me what I want. And and that's just a way that we use the law to work our way into God's favor or blessing without Jesus. It's self-righteousness. How about this? Is God displeased with me is that why i don't have enough money what i need what i think i need that first off is an understatement uh, an underestimation of how completely jesus has satisfied the law for us but it's also a misunderstanding of what true blessedness looks like in the bible Now, how about this last one? I think this is the most important for us to hear. I have a pretty good life, while other people seem to struggle a good bit. I must be doing this right. Now that right there is just straightforward self-righteousness. And I think as audacious as that sounds, more of us believe that sort of thing than we're willing to admit. And if we searched our own hearts... I do believe that we would find a lot that needed correcting in that same vein of self-righteousness. We need to spend more time evaluating our heart motives when we try to obey the law of love that God has given us. And that's something that I think would have served the Pharisees well. And we are our own kind of Pharisee. So we should do the same. We must do away with this self-righteous way of thinking and preach the good news to ourselves and to each other more often. The good news of Jesus undermines these self-righteous tendencies in every person. So, let's continue on. Let's read verse 16. But I'm going to stop part of the way through this. I think this needs some explanation. Verse 16 the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. I'm going to stop right there. Here's where some of our friends who might not be as familiar with the Bible might need a little catching up. So track with me here. The law that we've been talking about, I think it's a good time to explain it. The law is essentially found in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. And it contains the precepts and the laws that the people of God are to follow in order to love God and their neighbors well. They were written first. The prophets were written after that. And the prophets included all of the writings by the prophets in the Old Testament written after these first five books called the Pentateuch. They include people and books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and the list goes on. And as we've already discussed, anytime the people of God try to live in accordance with the law, we have all failed. We have failed to follow the rules of the first five books of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, for example. And that is a big reason that the prophetic books were written. They were a call for the people of God to repent for not having kept the law. And he also foreshadowed the Messiah that would come and fix this problem of us not being able to keep it. So, Jesus says that the law and the prophets were until John. But who is John, you might ask? John is Jesus' cousin. He came and was born right before Jesus. And John was also known as John the Baptist, who you may have heard of before. He was the last prophet of the Old Covenant, the last prophet of the Old Covenant that God made with Israel. But he not only preached a message of repentance, like the Old Testament prophets, he also preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. He was the only prophet that was able to say both repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and also Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He essentially paved the way for Jesus' ministry. He is the prophet who bridged the Old and the New Testaments. And that's why Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. Because John came on the scene, and then the gospel of the kingdom of God was being preached. The kingdom of God came with the appearance of Jesus. He is the king of the kingdom, and his kingdom is established in the hearts of every person who trusts in faith in King Jesus. So the law and the prophets were until John, but now the gospel is preached because Jesus has arrived. But the Pharisees, the interpreters of the law, didn't recognize the king or the kingdom. They were too self-righteous to see him. Before the humble and repentant sinner, well, that's a different story altogether. Let me read all of verse 16. Again, I'm going to finish verse 16 this time. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the, gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, this is a good time to share the second supporting truth from our text. Number two, nothing will keep repentant sinners from entering the kingdom of God. Nothing will keep repentant sinners from entering the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean when he says everyone is forcing his way in? And he's talking about the kingdom of God here. There is some debate over that translation, but in its context, it seems this is Jesus' way of saying that those who trust in Jesus come running into the kingdom no matter what Or who obstructs the way? The late Pastor R.C. Sproul explains this phrase, everyone forces his way in like this. The kingdom of God has broken through. The gates are open and people are pressing into it. But the Pharisees who who are supposed to be the the leaders of righteousness stand outside the gate and they resist it. It's the Pharisees that bar the path to the kingdom of God, threatening people with the weapon of their self-righteousness. So church, this is a lesson for us. We must put to death our pharisaical inclinations, our self-righteousness for the sake of the lost. But even if we didn't repent of our sins and self-righteousness, God forbid, nothing will stop repentant sinners from entering the kingdom of God. But I do pray that we would repent and clear the way By our repentance, making it as easy as possible for people to enter the kingdom. Everyone was forcing their way into the kingdom. Not by their own strength, not by their good works. That's not the way that they were forcing their way into the kingdom. What we have to remember is that when the kingdom of God came with Jesus, there was a whole system in place that misused the law of God and made it difficult for people to believe and trust in the Son of God when he arrived. Everything, including the general brokenness of the world, is working against the repentant sinner. But the people that know they are sinners, the people who are hopeless or the people who are desperately waiting for the true Messiah, they have to force their way through all of the obstacles to enter the kingdom but nothing is going to stop them. Why does the repentant sinner persevere through all of the obstacles? It's because of this. When a person has been humbled by their life experiences and when they see that their sin has gotten them nowhere. Or when they see that they are in such desperate need that they have nowhere else to run. When people decide that they would be willing to give or do anything to find salvation. These people are the ones who see Jesus. They're the ones who hear his true message of free salvation and they come running just to touch the hem of his garment. Or they come and they force their way through the roof to lower their sick friend down into the presence of Jesus. These people forced their way through by the grace of Jesus to reach his care. They pressed into the gates of the kingdom despite all obstructions when Jesus preached because they recognized that all of a sudden the gates had flown open to paradise and to safety and to salvation and to forgiveness. So church, we must ask ourselves yet another question. Are we that desperate for Jesus to reign over our lives because if we're not we need to check our hearts for self-righteousness for self-justification and if we have never once felt that sort of desperation in our lives for Jesus we need to evaluate whether we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ or if we're just going along with the program. Because true believers know that they need Jesus. And they know that they will repent of any sin, relinquish any power, deny every desire that displeases God, and they will long to be justified before God and rather than men. And they also trust in Jesus when they fail. Because we will all fail at that task sometimes. The love repentant sinners feel for King Jesus is what makes them devote their lives to his way and to his reign. They see his beauty. They see what he's done for them. Church, church, storm the gates of the kingdom and run into his gates every single day. Cast off the sin that entangles you. What is lost is absolute garbage compared to what is gained in the kingdom of God. Now, the the theological reasons for running to Jesus are usually not in the forefront of a repentant sinner's mind when they first come running. I think being enthralled with Jesus doesn't necessitate some theological depth. But the more that we learn about God, the more that we learn about what Jesus has done, the more beautiful the work of Jesus seems because it is. It's beautiful. So let's read verse 17. Everyone forces their way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. That might be a little obscured for some of us, but We may not realize it right now, but what Jesus is saying should crush the self-righteous hopes of the Pharisees. Allow me to explain. We have already established the fact that the Pharisees relaxed the law for some and added to the law in whatever way benefited themselves. And what we have to understand about the law is that it was written in Hebrew, which contained a lot of dots in the written language. And if one dot of that language was removed, it could change the whole meaning of the word or the sentence. More than that, Jesus always spoke very positively about the law. He loved the law of God. Jesus did never did away with the, the law of God. As a matter of fact, he tells us explicitly in Matthew 5.17 that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that it is easy, easier for the entire universe to disappear than for one single dot on the law to be changed. Not one law can be relaxed. Not one law can be added to the law of God. No one can change the meaning of the law. The law of God cannot be changed at the whim of any one person. The obligations of the law are fixed. The Pharisees will be held accountable to every single rule down to the last dot. And friends, we are obligated to the law as well if we trust in our own selves for salvation. The obligation to follow the law of love with absolute perfection is still upon every single soul in the human race under penalty of death and condemnation of hell if we trust in our own good works to save us. And since we have all failed to love God and our neighbors perfectly, that truth should strike fear in the hearts of every single one of us who are self-righteous. That is, until we understand what Jesus has done for us. Amen? The law was condemnation for people like the Pharisees who chose to take it on as their hope for salvation. Because they failed to do it perfectly before they ever even started trying. But to the disciple of Jesus, to the one who has faith in Jesus, the law is what opens our eyes to see the need for a savior. Every single dot of the law had to be kept with perfection, mind you, and we cannot begin to claim success. But there is one human who can. There is one human who can claim both full humanity and full divinity. And there is one man who has been through every experience uh, that a human being can go through, who has lived under the law, who was tempted in every way, but never failed to please God. His name is Jesus Christ. He did what we could not do. And he died in our place, the death that we deserved for disobeying the law and because he was successful where we were failures, and because he was qualified and willing to take our place on the cross, and because he is the divine son of God who was risen from the dead, we who are desperate for salvation... Can come running into the open gates of the kingdom toward the forgiveness of Jesus with such determination that we will not be hindered by the barricade set up by the false teachers and the self-righteous leaders and our own love for money and our own desire for power. So we beat our chests in the eyes of evil because our faith is in Jesus and we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and we keep our eyes fixed on the prize because it was purchased for us. We refuse to let our sinful desires control us and we run to the grace of God with desperation and hope to find ourselves weeping for the love of God. The law, it needed to be kept. And Jesus did it for us. So, our last supporting truth is this number three, Jesus is the only hope of salvation for all people. You see, the self righteous person hopes in themselves. They either lack the humility to admit that they need a savior and refuse to submit to the actual worthy king or they're so blinded by the love of money and power trying to justify themselves before men that they refuse to see the solution to one of the most universal dilemmas in the human experience, the need to somehow be made right before the God of the universe. And some, may be, some, some people may deny this need. But all people feel this need deep in their hearts. Let me explain. Sometimes we call it the feel of inadequacy. Sometimes we call it shame. Sometimes we call it making a name for ourselves. We call it wanting to leave a legacy. We call it the fear of missing out or the need for more or the search for self. Any of these words sound familiar? Our hearts in feeling and desiring these things tell us that we have broken the law of God and we are not adequate. The requirement to love God and neighbor perfectly has not been kept. But where we humans naturally look for solutions to this problem, The need is never fulfilled. At least not until we finally stumble over the stone that the self-righteous builders rejected to find that he is actually the cornerstone of our very existence. He is the source of life and love and forgiveness and joy. Jesus is the only hope of salvation for all people for Pharisees and for every other type of sinner on the earth. If you've ever felt inadequacy, if you've ever felt hopelessness or the need to justify yourself, Jesus is the one to whom you should run. He fulfilled the requirements of uh, of God for us in his perfect life. He died in our place on the cross of crucifixion where we deserve to die and he will grant his resurrection life to you if you trust in him for grace and forgiveness. Will you devote your life to him today? That's the question. Run through the gates of the kingdom of God. Ram your shoulders straight through the obstacles that try to hold you back whether it's your own sins or the sins of another. Jesus is ready and willing to receive you in. And he will give you strength for everything you need to press through. And then he will share his own inheritance with you when you arrive. If you have already received the grace of the king and entered his gates with thanksgiving, I hope that you through hearing the word of God today, that you have been rejuvenated in your love for God and will determine with me to set aside your self-righteousness for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the lost. We are in this together, church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, which has no end. And if you would like to receive Jesus, if you have not done so already, if you would like to make him your savior and your king, speak with the person who brought you. They brought you for a reason. And if you came on your own, speak to me or Greg today. We'd love to talk with you more about the salvation that Jesus offers. And one last note, if if you are somebody who is here today who has been a long-standing believer, maybe you have been Maybe you've been a member of Grace on the Ashley for a really long time. But you see that the God of all creation is convicting you that maybe you have been a Pharisee all along and have never trusted truly in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you that there is a fountain of forgiveness ready and waiting for you. He will take your shame no matter how great Don't let it hold you back. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And he came for Pharisees too. Remember, the good news of God's kingdom will thrill the repentant sinner. And it will undermine the self-righteous. Let's pray. Father, we are, honestly, we're humbled. I, am, I have not read a text that impacted me so deeply to understand my own sin, to understand the joy that I have been given in Jesus Christ, to know that he has fulfilled all of my shortcomings, that he has given me life despite all that I have done, that there's still hope for me when my self-righteousness arises that there is forgiveness for me and that you, O oh Lord, have given me the power to turn from that sin. And I pray that you would show every single person here who is a faithful uh, servant of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, that that power is there for them as well. And Lord, I do pray that for anybody who has not received you in salva- your salvation and who has not received the forgiveness that you offer, Lord, I pray that they would receive it today. Let them wait no longer. Because there is joy set before them and nothing can hold them back if they just run to you in your strength. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that it is not us, but through Christ in us that we have been saved. But that our determination should be to please you and to run to your kingdom daily. It's in the name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.